Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian. Joining me, as always, is your co-host, Jim. Earthquake Toilet Chronicles. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about that sort of thing before we uh, before we went live today. Also joining us is your co-host, Hunter. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> your co-host, Spaz. <laughs> Hello. And my friends, we have a guest this week joining us from, I hope I say this right, Iwa Beach in Hawaii, you lucky sod. <laughs> it's actually Eva Beach. Eva. Eva. Oh, so the the W's pronounced like a V? Yep. God, I would never have known that. Um, <laughs> public school education. Um, joining us from Eva Beach in Hawaii uh, is Trevor Sorensen, the creator and developer of now one of my favorite games, Starfleet 2 Crowling Commander. Welcome back, Trevor. Thank you, Brian. It's uh, great to, to be back again. And now uh, I said this, uh, I, I touched on this, but I'm going to start with an apology. The last time you were here, I had I had played maybe 30 minutes of Starfleet 2. I was terrified of it. So I didn't purposely avoid talking about it, but we barely touched on it. Um, and that is my fault. That is completely and utterly my fault. I was kind of scared of the game at the time. <laughs> To my detriment. And um, one of the reasons I started streaming it was because I, uh, because of that podcast and because I'd only record like one half hour video where I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And so I think I spent 20 minutes just trying to fly to a planet because I didn't know how to use the, the navigation system correctly. And it was embarrassing. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I started streaming it. Uh, to try and make amends, <laughs> as it were. And uh, since then, it has become one of my top four games of all time. Uh, and so I am delighted to have you back so we can talk about it in much more detail than we did last time. Uh, especially now that um, development on on the game has resumed, which I want to get to. Uh, and hopefully the game will be coming to Steam. Um sometime hopefully this year um so folks who might not who are listening who might not know um what starfleet is which is ridiculous really because if you're listening to this podcast you should know what star but for the sake of argument let's say someone listening doesn't know about the starfleet series how would you explain um to someone new to the series what what the starfleet series is uh, I assume that's a question to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's uh, based on um, the uh, some of the old original Star Trek games, and in particular, Starfleet 1, The War Begins, which was uh, the first one that was marketed, uh, was sort of an enhanced version of a very popular Star Trek game that uh, actually started, from what I can tell, in the, the late 60s. I first came across it in the uh, mid-70s. And um, I made a uh, what I think was a, a better version. Uh, some uh, friends of mine uh, down at the uh, in Houston and also California formed a company 
to market games, and that that was our uh, first one that we did. Now we, uh, I had tried to get uh, release it as a Star Trek game. I contacted the Paramount Picture folks, and uh, the uh, license had already been given to another gaming company. So we had to transform it into a different universe story, change some of the terms, etc. But uh, people that look at it say, oh, this is, is really a, a Star Trek game. And so it is where you are controlling a, uh, a capital, a large spaceship, a capital ship, and you are fighting against overwhelming odds to save the galaxy, basically. Um, the Starfleet one was mostly a shoot 'em up type where you were mostly just uh, destroying other uh, enemy ships and rescuing star bases. Uh, Starfleet 2, though, I went back to the drawing board and based on everything I'd learned from Starfleet 1 and looking at other space-type games that were around and everything, I decided to design a game that I would like to play that, uh, that had everything in it that I wanted to see in a game. And I abandoned the uh, uh, Quadrant Sector system that was in that and i added lots of other ship types uh uh planets and uh uh being able to do planetary invasions and boarding ships so uh, basically you're a commander of a battle cruiser uh you when you get up in rank a bit you get escorts to form a battle fleet and you have to invade the enemy region of space, be able to explore, conquer planets, uh, etc. And you get different missions along the way. So it is not the type of game where you, everybody in the the game uh, or your your crew have names, for instance, and personality traits and that. This is at a a much higher level. Uh, You do interact with the crew, but they are known just by their position, not by their name. And there's no um, economics in it other than you're accumulating your personal wealth uh, throughout your career. So I, I think that's basically what I'd say. Well, now, one thing I um, <laughs> interact with your crew by sending them to die, Shogun says, that's not inaccurate. Um, one thing I find fascinating about Starfleet 2 is that each mission is not a, a it, you have you have a mission you have a goal but the mission itself is not scripted it is not um it is not set it's basically a mini sandbox for each mission basically you have a sector of space which is generated when you load the mission and you finish the mission like how how it happens to you as it goes it's not like there are, there are no like events or anything. It's just kind of, just kind of a like a sandbox. So how did that come about? Where you have this randomness and you have this kind of open way to solve a mission. How did that? That's one of the things that fascinates me the most about the game. How did that come about? Well, the in Starfleet One, uh, and and the the precursors to it, uh, Starfleet that I wrote in Fortran and that. The enemy 
action that really did not have an AI. When it, it came to shooting, I mean, they'd check to make sure that, that they, they could see their target of that, but it didn't really have an AI. And it was uh, just random. But when you were playing it, you could swear often that the enemy said, oh, that was a brilliant tactic on the enemy's part. And, and people would uh, credit the game with having AI when it didn't. And hmm. so um, with Starfleet 2, though, I realized that randomness is a very useful tool because it, pre- it prevents it from being predictable. And but it also because of the complexity of the game and what it has to do and everything and the number of forces involved, it had to have an AI in it as well. So it, it is a mixture of AI, which is basically a set of rules with randomness applied to it. And it's kind of amazing because the AI is really clever, like especially for something built so long ago um it is really clever like uh friends i don't know if you watch um the streams i've been doing but one of my favorite um one of my favorite things that happened in a recent stream was i came across an enemy heavy cruiser which is the biggest enemy ship in the game and uh of course i went oh crap oh crap oh crap uh and then it disappeared and I thought it might have run away. I thought it might have left the system. And But there was a planet nearby, and I should have realized this. But I went to the planet just to check it out, because sometimes you can find things on planets, you can invade them. So I went, to, I went into orbit to check it out. Next thing I know, uh, I'm dead. Uh, the enemy cruiser was in orbit, it, and those, fa- those cruisers have six phaser banks. Uh, versus my one phaser bank. And before I could even really react and before my escorts could help, it phasered me to death. And I couldn't be mad. I couldn't be mad at all. I was, I laughed. I was like, oh my God. So, and, and so I think the AI is really well done. Um, so is there there's a randomness to the AI and it follows a set of rules and that's what gives it its kind of unpredictable nature? Yeah, well, when you have a, a human or intelligent life form in charge of a, a ship, then they will have decisions to make. And it's not always possible to predict what their decisions are going to, to be. You know, what tactic are they going to employ? Are they going to charge you? Are they going to run away? Are they going to flank you? Are they going to try and sucker you into orbiting a planet? And so there are rules where they can, and I have it where it, they can uh, size up the situation, like what uh, firepower are they facing? What allies do they have? And they can uh, uh, come up with some alternatives, and then you'll get a randomness that will go in to uh, decide which of the alternatives that they'll take. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that makes this game such an amazing story generator. It, I mean, you have a lot of games with fixed scenarios, and you have a lot of games that do randomness, but because of the really open nature of this game. It just, it, it, so many different things can happen, 
which which just astounds me. And one thing that also astounds me about this game is, um, which I think really, besides the randomness, sets it apart from a lot of other games that try and have this level of depth, uh, is the ranking system. Um, folks, if you don't know, Starfleet 2 employs a rank system where you go through uh, five, no, how many ranks are there? there are five? Seven. Seven, thank you. There are seven ranks with five missions each. So 35 missions in total. And uh, that might not sound a lot, but I'm on the the 22nd mission. This morning was 22nd. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still on the 22nd mission. And no, I'm sorry. 22nd entry. No, today was the 26th entry. But I'm twenty six. Yeah, yeah. But right. I think Sorry. I'm on the twenty second mission, and I'm about eighty five hours in. So there's a lot of gameplay here. But each rank, um, each rank gives you different responsibilities. The very first rank is just your ship, and then a couple rank. Then then you eventually get a fleet. Uh, where you have to deal with escorts, and then eventually you can do planetary invasions. And that's where I am right now is the rank where you can do planetary invasions and command local forces in your system. So I want to know, cause I think that's brilliant, Trevor. I think, I think that's what really, one of the reasons it sets, this game is set apart from other games like it. Like I love you, Derek, but battle cruiser, for example, it's basically, here's a bunch of stuff. Go throw you into the deep end, figure it out. <laughs> here's a 400 page manual. Just go. And, and that doesn't really work very well. But your rank system, I think, works amazingly well for easing idiots like me into the game. So where did that come from? Well, actually, that started back in the Fortran version of Star Trek, or Starfleet, as I called it, that I developed when I was uh, living out in uh, California working at NASA Ames in the late 70s. And I decided that there... You know, there had to be more than just winning a game. There had to be sort of a long-term goal. So I did two things. One is I added an awards system in based on various achievements, different levels of awards. And the other thing was to add the ranks in where you got promoted to the next rank. But I didn't want to overwhelm the player at the beginning. And Starfleet 1 does not have... Uh, tutorials per se, but it does have a rank system where uh, when you start out as a a cadet, the uh, enemy uh, won't move and your star bases won't come under attack. And and it's fairly simple. There are no Zaldrons, which are the uh, invisible ones and that. And But then when you go up the rank, the enemy gets more aggressive and more things can come in into, uh, into play. And you get fewer star bases to support you so that when you – so as you get up each high in rank, you, get, you continue with that feeling of achievement that you're, you're not just doing more of the same. You've actually conquered a harder level and, and you work your way up. And so I carried that – same uh, philosophy through to Starfleet 2, but Starfleet 2 is a much more complex game than Starfleet 1, much, much more. So I knew I couldn't just 
really start people out like that, which is why we have uh, eight tutorials to um, to help train people in the basics of uh, controlling the ship, doing planetary invasions, controlling other ships like that. There's a tutorial on a different subject, and you're supposed to, like the first couple tutorials, you do at a low rank, and then when you get up to a higher rank and you can do invasions, then you do the invasion tutorial, etc. Right, and then eventually you'll, um, I haven't gotten there yet, but you can do more, uh, it gets more strategic because you can control uh, forces in your region and whatnot. Yeah, t- I- tutorial eight is the strategic control uh, tutorial where you learn how to control other ships. Uh, I, I played it once and I was like, ah, uh, I'm sure I'll play it again once I reach, um, I think the next rank is the one yes. that gives me uh, strategic uh, my next rank is the one that gives me uh, strategic control. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you is that um, you could you you can't well, can you okay? How do I phrase this? When your ship gets blowed up, you don't really die and you don't really lose. You basically start the mission again with a different ship because now that ship that you were flying needs to be repaired um, or rebuilt. Um, but also when you run out of time, because each mission is timed, you do the mission again. So there really isn't a fail state, as it were. Or is there, and I just haven't hit it yet. Um, the, well, okay, um, the, the basic premise of this uh, game is that you are flying, uh, or you're running a simulator, that you're a UGA, an alliance officer, running a simulator that enables you to be able to think like the enemy or like the Krellans. And so uh, that's why these 35 missions are are like training missions where you get different tasks to do. And you can't move on until you accomplish the goals of that particular mission. Um, Now, I, I do not... Uh, so if you fail in a mission time-wise, uh, you know it, it's you you get to keep the uh, awards or rewards you got, in, which we call krells, is like the gold or slaves because krellans like slaves. Uh, you you get to keep those because that's sort of cumulative that you get throughout your whole career. But you just go back and you start it again with a completely new region. I mean, you have the same objectives, but the stars, planets are all different. And so you get another another chance to do it, and you keep doing it until you've mastered it, and then you're ready to move on to the next step. But if you are destroyed and, uh, you know, it is – the game does an autosave every so often so that if something happens, you can go back to the autosave uh, sometimes that gets deleted, like when you leave the game or something, there are certain times. So it is uh, best to save your own games. Uh, so if you get destroyed, and this is what happened to you when you got blown up by that heavy cruiser, you uh, could go back and resume your game. Now, you, your ship, I think was the Skull, was destroyed yeah. by that heavy yeah. cruiser. But when you go back to the same game, you're back in the skull again, and you successfully completed the mission. 
But when you go back, there's a list of battle cruisers. When you go back to uh, the list of cruisers, Skull is no longer available. It was wiped out, and it takes 10 game turns before, I mean, 10 different new games before it will come available again. <laughs> so right. that is one of the consequences you have. Uh, it's not a real bad one, but if you have mm. a favorite ship, then you've lost it for a while. And yeah. it's not just you. Yeah. If, if someone else loses a battle cruiser, then it will be taken out of the list as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay, uh, it's, I'm not sure if that's actually working right now because I think maybe it's not, but it's supposed to be. Okay. Um, but what I was what I was getting at is that uh, usually games with a timer, um, usually games with a timer really stress me out. But because the um, running out of time means you just do it again, it doesn't stress me out here. It's kind of amazing. It, it doesn't stress me out at all. Um, except that one time where I was towing a, uh, a light cruiser to, uh, to base and I made it with 0. 0.01 uh, moments to spare. That was amazing. What a classic. Oh, my God. I watched that again the other day. Just like... So, friends, there was, um, there was a mission where you had to capture a light cruiser and uh, turn it in. And I was on, I think, my fifth attempt. And um, I had finally captured it, but I was almost out of time. So what I had to do, and I, I knew if I had sent a landing party, they wouldn't have done it in time. So I had to tow it back myself. And so um, I had to almost overload my engines by going too fast, but I made it with seconds to spare. And it was one of the finest gaming moments I've ever had in my 40 plus years of, uh, of gaming. Um, so that's one of the ways this game is a story generator. But again, if I had failed that mission, I would have been sad. You know, if I had run out of time, I would have been sad and I probably would have been upset for a few minutes, but then you just, you get to go out and do it again in a different sector. So you get to do all the fun exploration and stuff again. Um, Shogun does have a question from, uh, the chat, which is a good one. Is it theoretically possible to lose the game by running out of battle cruisers? Uh, what, I'm not sure. Do you mean the, the, a mission or the, the like, total like, game? Like say they keep getting blowed up. And so there's like 60 of them or something. And say you go through all of them and they're all, be, they're all destroyed. Um, I don't even know if that's possible because they do get repaired in like 10 turns or 10 game missions but i guess is it possible to lose so many battle cruisers that you lose the game not not you personally if um, like i remember there was one time you were getting reports of a star base that took out five battle cruisers yes and and, and um so as you get up to the higher ranks like when you're fighting the entire region um it, uh, I, it would be very unlikely, I think, that you'd lose uh, enough battle cruisers. You know, like it, you know, every ten, 10 missions, they, they come back up. Every time you go to a new mission, they all get one turn closer to being operational again. So if it's only your battle cruiser, it's, it's impossible. If I keep track of all the other battle cruisers, then it might be possible. 
but there is a, a default battle cruiser if none of them are available. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, but but I, I don't know what would uh, what would happen when it tries to set other battle cruisers for your region if if none were available. You know that situation's never occurred, so it's actually <laughs> a good one to think about. Good one to go into test, see if it breaks things. <laughs> That's what um, playtesting's for, right? I, and I I want to I want to swerve to that a bit now. Um, this game is, folks, if you don't know, the game is back under active development. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, you might go, wait, it was made in 1989. How is it back under active development? Um, Trevor, would you, how did this, because you, you said you, uh, you, have a, you have an actual 486 that you play this on, like a, le- like a legacy piece of hardware. Um, right. But I don't think you had that for a while. Like, what is the story of this this game coming back under development. Okay. Well, first of all, probably back up a little bit. Um, we right. were, uh, it was Interstellar Corporation was, was my company that published this and, and the other Starfleet and Empire and that. And we were an affiliated label of Electronic Arts. And uh, the development of this was uh, started really in 1985. And we were projecting a 1988 release on it. And that is what um, Electronic Arts uh, took uh, or started advertising that had come out in 88. I, I had, and Mark Baldwin was my co-author on this, and we had no idea how complex this was and how difficult it was going to be to uh, to program and so 88 came and went. I had probably two or three dozen play testers and would get in, you know, dozens and dozens of bug reports and things like that during the uh, development. And uh, we were under a lot of pressure to get it out for the 89 Christmas season. And so we had to ship it by August 89. And um at the time that it was launched i knew there were some bugs in it but i thought it was uh basically playable that that you could finish it all the way uh but actually that's an embarrassment to me because it really was very buggy and i don't think it was possible to to finish the game when it came out in 89 i immediately did some some patches or updated like 1.1 went out a couple months like in November, but that was only uh, to people that requested it. We we would send that out. You know, we didn't have internet back in those days. We we had a bulletin board service, and you I think you could send it over that. But anyway, so I continued developing it for another couple of years, and in 1991. Um, which is shortly after I uh, uh, ended up leaving Interstell. Uh, I had version 1.5b, which I and some others completed all the way through to Imperial Tribune, and it seemed to be pretty bug-free. So we left it at that. If it ever came a chance to to sell it again or market it, you know, that was the one we we're going to do because it was pretty bug-free and, and a lot better than the version one. 
And I, I was at the time uh, living in Virginia and I had a 486, I had a 386 uh, computer and a 486 PC was the one that I had had finished the development on, on uh, the uh, uh, 1.5B, but there really seemed to be no future for it. And I, uh, 91 is when my first child was born. And for those of you that are parents can understand that did not leave me a lot of time for, for doing development work and stuff. So it pretty much languished, but I carted my computers around with me everywhere. And when we went back to, to Kansas, I got the the 486 out and I'd received one bug report that the supplies Wait. were being used too quickly. Wait, what? And it, That's a, when was that? Oh, that was in the 90s. So, you know, people were playing it, you know, the, that uh, had gone it off the internet and stuff. No, this was in the early 2000s. Sorry. Uh, wow. People had, had downloaded it from uh, Moby Games or, or whatever, you know, the abandonware type sites. And then I got a, quite a bit of, of email, fan mail and things. And they said, yeah, it's, it's good, but the, the supplies have been used too fast. And I also realized that 1.5B still had that horrible lookup security system in to look up the word in the manual. So I decided that I would modify it to get rid of the the lookup and also fix the bug on supplies. This was about 2004, probably. And so I did a little bit of work on it, and then the 486 died. Oh. And uh, so I just continued to cut it around with me until I got in here into uh, Hawaii. And then in 2018, one of my colleagues at the Hawaii Space Flight Lab uh, has his, uh, uh, his hobby is old computers. And so he took it, he found out there was a battery, a bad battery, and, and did uh, replace a couple other parts. Uh, the hard drive was bad. He, he managed to save the, most of the data, write it onto another one and everything. But basically, he got the 486 up and running uh, for me again. And so with a functioning computer, I thought, ah, now I can finally go in and get rid of that security system and... And I, I've I sort of had the itch of programming again. There are a number of things I really had wanted to add to the program, so I just started to to tinker with it and uh, tinker and tinker and tinker. And here we are today, and you have added so many things since since I started playing it. At least, um, it it almost feels like a very different game. Uh, based on some of the things you've added uh, a lot of, and, and I have to, I have to say what I love is when you add things, it's like quality of life things. You don't take away any of the complexity. Uh, you don't take away um, any of the detail, you know, you don't make it like easier or anything. You just make it more efficient. Um, Easier to use or play, yes. probably. Yes, yes. He's definitely easier to play, but not easier from a challenge perspective, um, which I really appreciate. Like, you've made supplying easier. You've made, like, troop withdrawal easier. Um, well, not easier, but 
more efficient, more less tedious. I guess is probably a better way to describe it. Um, and you're about to add a lot more. And I've given your executive officer a uh, a voice so that when you oh. uh, forget something or screw up something or something needs doing, he can remind you or she. He also has he or she also has some of the funniest lines in the game, uh, folks. There's a thing where um, you're the bad guys in this game, and I want to talk about that in a bit. You're the bad guys in this game. The uh, well. Uh, story like uh, I love the Krellins, but you're you're kind of the bad guys. And one thing, uh, good bad, it's it's all in your yeah, point of view. But but one thing, uh, your ship has morale, which I think is amazing. And to raise morale, you can uh, execute prisoners by beaming them either into space, into a sun, or into a gas giant. And the quips you have for the XO when you do this are hilarious. <laughs> they are absolutely like, Oh, well, look, we've made some more space debris or, Oh, look, they go pop or something like, <laughs> look at them wiggle. <laughs> I do have a bit of a nasty streak. There, it's, don't I? it's so great. And I want to talk about that because there aren't a lot of space games I guess they're games in general, but space games where you are um, slotted, where you are particularly the villain. Um, you know, there's TIE Fighter and there's Independence War 2. But a lot of games where you're the bad guy, it's either you're either the, you can either choose to be good or you can choose to be bad, you know, like Mass Effect or whatever. But here you are the bad guy you are the invaders you and and did that give you any kind of freedom when you were making this or did that constrain you in any way when you were making this? well actually i do have a a conscience and i'm I'm basically a, a pretty pretty good person and uh, it's like a lot of actors uh enjoy being able to play the villain it it yes. enables them to to show some of their their talent and and to get into a different uh, persona and so uh it was actually a friend of mine an engineer at the Johnson Space Center who came up with the idea of oh well, why don't uh, in the next game you uh uh you play the Krellens to be the the bad guy and i thought about that and i thought well say that that would be fun and as playing the bad guy, I can do a lot of things that I really couldn't do, like in Starfleet 1, where you're the good guys, the UGA. And But I also said, but, I, you know, there's sort of the moral dilemma of, you know, beaming captives into a star and slaughtering planets and things like that, that I, I could get a lot of criticism for it. I mean, it'd be fun to program, but uh, it could be hit really hard in reviews and that. So that's why uh, we package it inside of a UGA simulation. And so all of the the intro, the manuals and everything, it says, okay, you're a UGA officer running this Krillin uh, battle cruiser simulator to be able to think like a Krellin. That's the only way you're going to be able to beat them in the war is if you can get inside their head, know how they think and how they operate. 
And so that eases my conscience then is because, oh, this is only a simulation. It's not real. So I'm not really slaughtering billions of people and things like that. It's just a simulation. Uh, and, that's a, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to just say that, you know, my plan is for Starfleet 3 that you're going to go back and uh, be in the, the real world, not just a simulator, and except you'll be a, a UGA officer fighting against the, the Krellans. So, you know, enjoy beaming captives into into stars while you can because you won't be able to do that when you're a UGA officer. <laughs> well, you could, but they court-martial you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it, will, it won't raise crew morale like it does in this game. Yeah, <laughs> probably the opposite yeah it, i mean there was a lot of fun and you can tell from the the quips that i put in the exo i had a lot of fun coming up with ideas and and having a free reign like that i mean the the whole obliterator pod idea as well to be able oh to blow God. up whole planets it's sort of like the death star just inside packaged inside of a battle cruiser yeah that's kind of another amazing thing um it's 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 also kind of amazing because of the um the ASCII uh the 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 ASCII nature of the graphics allow you to they must give you a lot of flexibility to do things like this. If this was like a full 3D game, blowing up a planet would be a much different endeavor. But because it's um 2D graphics, um the imagination does a lot of the heavy lifting. Uh which is great. And again, it probably gives you a lot of flexibility to do things like that. Yeah, and and you know that's something that quite a few people have said that that they find the 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 charm of even Starfleet One. And uh, uh, Jerry Pennell was a, a real big fan of Starfleet One and wrote about it in his Byte column. And that your imagination fills in a lot of the graphic details. The it's not forced on you by the artist or whatever. It's your mind fills in the uh, the way you would imagine it to be when a planet blows up or when a ship, you know, when you have combat or something like that. So, um, and, and also with uh, Starfleet 1, we actually had, or the Starfleet program had a, uh, captain's log and and a lot of people would actually take the time to write the story down as it went along it, it was not just a game it was an experience and i'm i've taken some steps to do that by having the message and and uh, report logs but on my to-do list is actually to uh do a a ship's log or a, a captain's personal log that you can can uh record uh, your own diary as you go along that would be great because i kind of already do that i um while i'm playing i have a notepad open so i could like write down where i left landing parties and i can write down like which planets look ripe for invasion and i can you know write down all these notes and uh yeah an in-game personal log would be wonderful for that absolutely and uh since every since this game is so text-based it probably wouldn't be that hard to implement i would think right yeah, well it's sort of a variation of of what i do with the uh 
with the report and message logs, you know, how I, I record those and then you have a search function that enables you to go through and find a particular string of characters or word or something like that. Which amazes and- me that that's in a game from 1989. Like, I... I don't even remember if like my word processor from 1989 had a search function. It probably did, but I don't know if I ever used it, but that this game has search functionality for your messages and reports is it's, it blows me away really just how much you've put in here and how much interesting design is in here. And I like to tell people it's so well designed because you're an actual rocket scientist. (laughs) Um, Did that, I'm sure it did, but I just want to ask, did that factor a lot into the the design choices you made for Starfleet 2, especially? Well, let's see. Um, all of the, the people that were involved with the design of it, like Mark Baldwin was my co-author, Dennis Lawler uh, did the fractal generators for the, uh, the planets. Um, s- some of my uh, play tests and stuff that that helped form some of the ideas and would give feedback and that were all uh, NASA engineers at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, a couple of my partners uh, back in uh, for Starfleet One were at the NASA Ames uh, uh, at the time. So yeah, we had a, a real engineers uh, mentality and for trying to make things right or consistent. But I had to temper that with playability, you know, because orbiting the planet uh, takes typically at least one and a half hours. So, you know, we can't do that. And I also wanted to keep it in 3D and faster than light. And so, you know, we had to temper the the engineering part with the uh, sci-fi part. But there's some, like, if you dig down into the engine, this is one thing I love about this game that I don't use as much as I should. If you dig down into the engineering section of the game, there is boatloads of data about your ship's performance, which I find amazing that this game tracks. Um, It tracks energy, it tracks morale, it tracks supplies, it tracks just about every factor that has anything to do with your ship and you can export those into graphs and stuff. Uh, where, what I'm, I just, is that there for you or is that there for the player? Like I was wondering about that. Like if you had not told me that was there, you know, I, I don't know if I ever would have noticed it, but it's amazing that it is there. You know, aspect of it is okay. I'm, uh, des- helping you know, design, build satellites and the software to operate them, and and being able to plot telemetry is a vital aspect of of operations and spacecraft operations. And so, my work software that I've been uh, I designed has has this plotting capability in it. And there are things like, oh, you know, how quickly are supplies really being used? Or, or you know, how uh, quickly is the energy and what happens with the morale and stuff like that? So I decided, and, and this isn't back in the original game. This is something I added in uh, about uh, 
less than a year ago, is I decided to go ahead and pick some of the most important parameters in the game. And every time cycle, it records the series of parameters to a file with a timestamp. And then uh, I can go to this, call up this, this program that's loaded in um, that enables you to get a printout of all the values with time, or you can plot it. And to me, it's it's been very useful. Like I can see, okay, our uh, supply is being used too quickly, and I can tweak it. I mean, so it's something I've, as an engineer and designer, found very useful. But I thought that uh, players could also find it useful. It it's it's pretty amazing, actually. And uh, System in Shock in the chat brings up a good point. Like, if we could get that, like, maybe for the Windows version you plan to do on multiple monitors, that would be bloody astounding. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm planning on, you know, right now you have to go to different screens. Um, the uh, main main display, I call it, which is your main bridge, and you have your two... Uh, star maps and your system map and uh you know i'm planning on having those available in uh different different windows or that that you so you can have all the information there at once oh oh my god because yeah folks uh, one of the things that we hope will happen is after this gets released um there will eventually be a windows version that is the plan um, at this point, at least. And that's disgustingly exciting <laughs> because even the DOS version is amazing in how much data it gives you. Like you have used, have you used every ASCII character to convey information uh, for this game or at least a lot Not of them? Quite. <laughs> I mean, if, if you, um, I know you, you can't do it right, right now, but there is a reference library Right. in the game, in the computer. And it shows all the, the characters that are being used to uh, portray different objects and, and that. And one of the complications I found uh, a few months ago was that the um, computers in in uh, Eastern Europe, etc., use have a different ASCII character set. So... Some of the, the ASCII characters were the same and others were different. So I did an initial attempt to have a, an East European version of it, and you can select that in the settings of the game. And if you go to the East European one, it uh, substitutes some of the, like the destroyer character uh, is not the same or doesn't exist in the European one. So I use a, a different character that actually works just as well. And, and so, um, yeah, there's, and, and I probably should mention that back in the eighties to help me design all these screens in ASCII, I wrote a program in assembly language, AD86 assembly language called creator. And I use that to design all of the screens and everything in Starfleet 2, uh, all the ASCII, the graphic screens in Starfleet 2. And a lot of them are saved in files and are loaded into Starfleet 2 at the appropriate time. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you you said that um, the thing that lets you plot 
the different parameters like supplies and whatnot. That's a program. And I'm pretty certain that what you use for planetary invasions is also a, like a program. So there are how many programs running together here that make up the whole game that feed data to each other? Well, there's um, the, the main Starfleet. Well, there's a startup program where you set up your mission, sign on options, etc. And when you go either from a, a resumed or new mission, it, it writes all of the data in onto disk and it loads in the main Starfleet 2 program and it reads all the data in. Now, uh, there are some things like, um, oh yeah, if, if you're at Starfort, you can look at the interior of the Starfort to see what ships are there. That is a separate little program that's loaded in on top of the, the main program. Uh, and there are others as well. I think the, um, uh, the reference library is probably another one that does that as well. And there, there are several of them. But if it's a major thing like planetary invasion or boarding, it replaces the main program with this other program and uses transfer of data through data files to get data from one program to the other one. So it's sort of like a, an overlay type system that either you add these little programs on top of the main one or you replace it and then start the main program up again and have it go back to the right place where it was. And and that actually gets pretty complicated if and I'm I have to do that because of the 640k RAM limit on the on this computer. That's kind of amazing that you're still dealing with 640k. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of, isn't it's it? kind of astounding that all of this is within 640k. Well, really- one thing I might just mention though is that at the time we were developing this, Mark Baldwin was also developing an Atari ST version using the Atari ST graphics. So he wasn't limited to the ASCII characters. I mean, that, and, um, oh, whoa. But when the release of this was such a disaster, uh, you know, we, uh, EA bought 25,000 copies on the initial release. And we were expecting it to get up to about 100,000 copies, so like Starfleet 1 did. But um, but because it was soon realized that it was a, a defective release, they canceled orders for either any more uh, IBM or they also canceled the ST version of it. So the ST version never got finished. Oh, man. I and can only, as a matter of fact, when I go through the code, I see lots of code that's meant for the ST that that's just not used when, when I, when I build the program. Oh man, it's still in there. That's kind of amazing. Uh, I, now I want to talk about planetary invasions a bit um, because it's almost, and it did turn into a separate game uh, a few years after this one. Um, Star Legions, I believe it was called. Yeah. Um, but the planetary invasion is so, detailed on its own like it's kind of amazing how you made the two programs talk to each other and how what amazes me about it is everything has a running clock 
And um, when you're in the main display, you have a clock, you have a countdown timer. And um, but you also have a running clock in the invasion screen that transfers back to the running clock uh, in the main program. So the clock is always running. Um, But it just amazes me how you have all that sync up. You know, especially since the planetary invasion portion of the game feels very different than the spaceship version. Uh, I'm, I'm glad game. you clarified that you're talking about planetary invasions in the game because it's yeah. There's a lot of 2020 left, you know. Oh so. no no no. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's uh, 15 years. There's 15 years of 2020 left. Uh, who knows what could happen? It's quite a bit. Left. January Wait. was seven years ago. You know, right? I know. Yeah. January it was a decade ago. Speaking of planetary invasions, yeah, uh, Trevor, yeah, last time you were on the show, we had a, a really interesting conversation with you about um, your work with NASA, and uh, I got a, I got a, I got the distinct impression that there were some things where uh, you could neither confirm nor deny uh, certain aspects of maybe extraterrestrial life. (laughs) And, uh, you know, with the declassifications of things that are going on right now that are coming out, I didn't know if maybe you could, uh, uh, throw us a bone, man. Come on, throw us something. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I'll give you the, the UFO story, uh, from the Trevor perspective. Um, back when in the sixties, when I was in, in high school, UFOs were, were a big thing. And, and there was this guy named George Adamski that had a, a big following around the world and claimed to have been visited by Venusians or Jovians or something. <coughs> and, uh, um, what, I guess I have never seen a UFO, um, I've never seen any th- reports in my NASA work indicating the uh, UFOs or anything, but I know of a lot of really reliable technical type people that uh, have seen them. So I have an open mind on it. I don't, I ca- I don't dismiss it um, that that they uh, exist. And, but I don't also say I definitely know that they exist because I don't. So I just have an open mind on it. But this leads me to the Clementine mission to the moon in 1994. I was the lunar mission manager for Clementine. And Clementine spent um, two and a half months orbiting the moon, uh, took a couple million images of the moon's surface. It, it basically got, covered the entire moon with digital images, and every single image was shown uh, in mission control when it was beamed down, processed, it was shown, and the scientists for the mission often would sit in the observation room and would just watch the, the images as they were coming down. And I also knew the um, uh, the guys that, that were processing the, the data, and they, they would show me if they came across a, you know, like there was a square crater, we called it Fort Apache, and, and there was another one that was sort of like three circles, a big one, two little ones, we called that the Mickey Mouse Crater. 
and things like that. But at the time, I was on um, CompuServe, I think it was, where there were different forums and, and that. And there was one where where people were saying, oh, Clementine has uh, discovered alien artifacts on the moon, but they're hiding it up as that. And, and I said, listen, I'm the lunar mission manager for Clementine, and we did not see any of these large crystal domes or spheres or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I, I and if they had discovered it, then then that would have poured money into the space programs and stuff. So that why would they they hide it? And um, so I, I was sort of trying to bring a voice of of reason to that. And um, unfortunately, one of my colleagues at the time who worked for me on the Clementine mission has gained a reputation as an expert on aliens. And he, well, I saw him on TV um, probably about three or four years ago in which uh, it was a documentary, in quotes, about aliens on the moon. And he <laughs> came up with this, was saying that, well, Clementine's real mission was to investigate these alien structures on the moon. And there was this this room in, in the Batcave, which is where our control center was, that... Uh, that he wasn't allowed in because they were doing secret uh, uh, processing of the secret images and stuff. And, and I, I called him, I said, you know, uh, I won't say his name, but I said, what are you doing telling garbage like that? Because I know the room he went into, I used to go into it all the time, talk to the guys and, and they probably didn't let him in very often because it was a small, small room and, and they were really busy and he liked to talk a lot and stuff. And, and I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm only working half time now and I really need the money. And, and so the, <laughs> the uh, History Channel or whichever one it was, you know, pay him to be an expert. And so, so he, he you get to be an expert today and take our money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they want an expert to come in to help bolster, uh, the premise of the program. And, and I've seen him several times on these sort of programs to, to do that. And, uh, uh, it's not the, it's not not like the history channel aliens guy, is it? It's not, (laughs) you know, the, the, the meme, Never mind. The guy um, with the big hair. I've, I've seen several on them on on different shows, but I, I'm not going to to say what his name is. Anyway, although he did get the, uh, uh, he was the one that announced that Clementine had found water on the moon before it was uh, sanctioned by the uh, the management and the. See, it was a DOD mission, and he went in into the papers and told them that. Oh, before God. DOT said anything. So he uh, he got in trouble for that. Wait, right. was there really water on the moon, though? Yeah, although, um, the, well, there's been debate ever since Clementine. It, it did a, uh, a radar, bi-static radar experiment, which determined the, the signature it got was uh, typical of water ice. In the the southern the permanently shadowed parts of the uh, the south pole of the moon, where the sun doesn't get in, and it's called a, a heat trap or, or like a, a water trap, where the molecules don't get enough 
energy to be able to escape from the crater. So they'll tend to stay there and form ice. And, um, and so a lot of people did not believe it, but there have been several missions since then that have sort of confirmed it, although there are still no one there's some people that aren't going to believe it till we actually send a lander down there and, and make a martini with it or something. <laughs> Dude, I'll, yeah, I'll do it. Hell well, yeah. I thought it, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like the, the Chinese were talking about they found some kind of weird gel stuff in a crater with their rover. And then the picture that they showed, it actually looks like a cube or something. It doesn't, you know, I was expecting like a blob of stuff, but it's, it's like, I don't know. It's kind of got like a sharp edge on it. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Weird stuff on the moon. We live in interesting times. I'm I'm just looking forward to when humans get back on the the moon and we can really start doing a, a you know, thorough exploration because I'm sure that we really don't know what we're going to uh, to find there. We'll be yeah, amazed. The moon is like, you know, like Ty- Tycho City or Lake Armstrong. <laughs> well, like, uh, like, the moon- uh, sorry, like the 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 monolith. The the uh- <laughs> yeah. Well, the the moon's going to be our has to be our jump off point to the rest of the solar system, doesn't it? Isn't that how that? Yeah, you go up there and get that hydrogen three, and then uh, use that to get to Mars. <laughs> well, it, it's. Um, I, I don't want to, to get political here, and, and I, I won't, but I'll just say that that the space program objectives tend to change sometimes with change of administration, and uh, that some of the, the NASA managers have to tow the administration's line even if they don't agree with it. And I and, and a lot of other engineers think that uh, when it was decided to bypass the moon instead of go to an asteroid and then straight to Mars, but ignore the moon, that was uh, a big mistake. And I think we're back on the right track now is we go to the moon first, which is only a couple days away mm. and, and half a second time delay before we venture out to, to go to Mars that, that we, we, uh, and that it's a, a stepping stone to, to Mars. I think that's that's the right way to do it. You know, yeah, well, of, I was going to say, of all the good things from the movie, um, oh, what was that Brad Pitt movie that came out not too long ago? It was Ad Astra. Ad Astra. It was a terrible movie. Terrible movie. Good, good terrible effects. movie. I but agree. the the concepts though behind it were what I what intrigued me by it, like the idea of actually having commercial flights to the moon. And then, you know, from there, you actually can have like a launch off point to Mars and the rest of the, you know, the solar system. I mean, so so the concepts in the movie were quite interesting and I really liked them. But the, the film itself is just awful. I, I really like The Expanse, both the TV shows and I've read all the, the books where it's looking at the future of where the uh the asteroid belts are being uh utilized and you get cities built and things like that i I think that's that's a really really good and interesting series well you're among friends here (laughs) it kind of reminded me of the arthur the 2001 arthur c clark books like because there's a 3001 book and they never had faster than light travel nor did they ever leave the solar system um i thought that was kind of fascinating um, 
And the expanse kind of goes in that direction. Like there's no faster than light travel at all. Um, I mean, they find ways to kind of do that, but <laughs> that's a completely different thing. Yeah. Well, where it's going to get really good is in about five years, right? Because they're, they're already looking at map data to figure out where mineral deposits are. And they've selected like the two landers that they're going to use. So we're looking at manned missions, commercial Really? Like space and yeah. shit to the moon in 2025. You know, that that was actually something I was going to say that I thought was really interesting is is the fact that the the race for space right now has become more privatized and it's kind of opened up a lot more options of technology and funding and um, the whole thing that SpaceX has been doing over the last several years, even up until just recently, has been pretty impressive. So, yeah. So what what'll be interesting, right, is if they uh, if they figure out how to get the lunar cycler up, which it basically think space station, but it goes around the Earth out to the moon and back, right, and it just continuously does that. So that way, you don't have to shoot people all the way to the moon. You just get them to the space station, and it's already going right. So it's it's just like a train that goes around. And they've talked yeah. about that with Mars too, but. Boy, the the orbital difference with Mars, you know, it's like it's not like we're in sync with Mars or anything. So that would be a weird thing to try to do. I wonder if you they'll know, find Elon's car out there. One <laughs> <laughs> one of the 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 things that that people for, uh, forget, like with the uh, the cycler, when you go on an orbit that has its uh, perigee close to the Earth and its apogee is out by the Moon, is that it's the fastest part of the orbit is at perigee. So it is screaming past the earth and, and then it slows down a lot when it, it gets to the moon. So the moon transfers would be pretty easy, but you'd uh, have to, uh, to have a, a pretty good Delta V as we call it in order to, uh, uh, to be able to dock with it as it goes past the earth. So uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. So I was okay. just going to say, um, you know, I teach orbital mechanics and advanced orbital mechanics. And one of the things that I've done with, with my classes ever since I started teaching it is that, you know, just doing, learning it and then having problems and things is, gets pretty dull. And I wanted to come up with a way to uh, do a sort of a, a practicum for for the students. <clears throat> so near the end of the semester, I would show them a science fiction movie uh, that involves space travel, and I would have them play the role of a technical consultant to the producers, and they would have to view the movie, then write a uh, a proper engineering report to... Uh, critique the movie and if there are any problems with the orbital mechanics and stuff involved then they'd have to sh to do the calculations to show why it's wrong and what it should be and and i i found that that was a, a really good exercise and and uh some of the 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 films we did were uh we uh, 2001 Space Odyssey was one, Apollo 13, uh, Mission to Mars, uh, Red Planet, Armageddon. I mean, there there were several like that. Yeah, we even did Moonraker with the uh, oh, wow. space station. <laughs> yeah. So the game, the game I want to watch you play is Children of a Dead Earth. 
because that game is straight up orbital mechanics. You have very little fuel and you have to intercept and, and kill other spaceships, but they're, they're practical like rockets, right? So, um, it, there, there's no funny business that goes on. Well, they, they give the engines a little bit more than a realistic amount, but you have to worry about your fuel. You have to worry about how much heat you're generating because you can't just vent heat that easy because there's no air in space. Um, all, all of those things. If you haven't seen the game, I'll send you a link to it because it's, okay. it's pretty amazing. It's you amazing. Know, it, it's really funny when you watch shows like um, oh, Star Wars or some of the others where they're flying around planets and shooting that is because one of the laws or rules of orbital mechanics is, for instance, when you're in orbit around a planet is in order to speed up, you have to slow down. In order to slow down, you have to speed up. And yeah, you're, you're basically doing a controlled fall. Yeah, and so like if somebody is in front of you and you want to catch up to them, if you do a thrust in their direction to speed up, you'll miss them. What you have to do is you brake and so that you separate, but you're going into a lower orbit, which is faster, and then one orbit around, if you if you uh, uh, plan it correctly, you'll come right up where they are one orbit later. And then the same is if they're behind you and you want to to rendezvous with them, then you have to speed up, put more energy in your orbit, and you'll go into a higher orbit, and they will catch up to you underneath, and then you come down and we'll meet them. So, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of interesting things like that. I, yeah, I just playing that mind blown. That's insane. That's cool. We're playing Children of a Dead Earth. It's like it's like a, a Rubik's cube with circles, right? So it's it's really like you know do do I want to? It's it's not just like a forward or backward burn, but then you have to think about angle too. Yeah, like you know, like how do how do I want to insert into orbit? At what angle do I want to do it? Do I do I want to try to actually get in the same orbit track they are? Or do I want to be at some angle to it and then try to time it so that we cross orbits at the same time? And yeah, that game's nuts. It's it's just ridiculously hard. Yeah, when when I was working uh, in the flight director's office for the space shuttle, one of the things uh, I did was um, uh, rendezvous uh, and proximity operations flight techniques, and we had to. Uh, uh, we were looking at all the the maneuvers and things that you had to do. The shuttle had to do in order to rendezvous with something. So sh- and so and you also have sorry. out of plane burn. It's all a matter of energy, uh, managing energy, and and you know, like if you do a a out of uh, uh, plane, like a, a radial sort of burn then you aren't adding energy or taking energy away from the orbit, but you're changing the shape of the orbit, you know, some, some things like that. I'm really still sad about the shuttle program. How it just got shut down. Really still makes me sad to this day. Yeah. But I mean, it's sad to look back, but we, I'm looking forward to the future when Orion and, and, uh, the starship or spaceship or whatever it is flies and that. So uh, going back yeah, to and that's, and, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Well, that's what I was going to, I was going to kind of do that too. Is like, it's, it's really interesting to see. It's sad that that happened, but again, it's kind of interesting to see the, the, where things are going now though, like how the direction that things are going now with a lot of the technology, but I was actually going to ask how much, I mean, obviously you've been influenced by Star Trek for, for your games and stuff like that and other sci-fi, but like how much of your, your real world experience and stuff like that has been like applied to, to making your game. Okay, the <laughs> um, it, it's actually a cross fertilization because um, the the current software that we're we're d- working on that provides the onboard flight software for our satellites and also on our mission operations center is called Cosmos, uh, comprehensive open architecture solution for mission operations systems. And, wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> and, and the the main tool, which is sort of like your main display in Starfleet 2, is called the MOST, Mission Operations Support Tool. And it's it's the one that can give you graphs and planetary views and orbits and shows events and, and uh, what's happening with all your different subsystems and things. Uh, but there's another tool in in the cosmos suite called ceo the cosmos executive operator and it allows you to see the status of all of the satellites and ground stations and everything that that's in in your system and um the it matches very closely what we did for the planetary invasion and more even more so star legions where you get a little little view of all your landing zones as to a top-level status of what's happening so that if something comes up in that, you can go look into that zone. And so we, I applied the, the same sort of design to the, the cosmos, where you can keep an eye on everything at a very top level, and if something is going on somewhere, you can bring that up to get a, a detailed look at it. That's oh, that's awesome. And and of course, uh, the the long uh, goal is that we want to make a uh, version of Starfleet in built in Cosmos using our our Cosmos software, which of course is completely multi-thread. Yeah, um, folks. Once this comes to Steam, you will find that in 1989 they didn't have multi-threading, so uh, sometimes the game, you know. Not pauses, but your inputs get a little delayed um, because a lot of things are happening at once. Like, the torpedoes have their own battle computer, if I'm phrasing that right. Uh, so yeah. kind of, So they kind of have their own AI where they prioritize, where, like, if their target's destroyed, they can prioritize a new target on their own, which is amazing. <laughs> but I, I wanted to say you were talking about orbital mechanics and everything, and I kind of love how, even though it's not super detailed in Starfleet 2, there's a nod to it where you can change your orbit, which changes your speed. So you've incorporated that, but in an, ex- in an accessible manner. Which I, I just have to say, I love that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that obeys the basic, even though I'm not using orbital mechanics, in the implementation of it, it does obey the the basic law that the lower the orbit, the faster it is. 
So if you want to catch up with uh, someone that's ahead of you, you'll go down into a lower orbit, for instance, and uh, and then you can raise it back up again when you reach them. And and in the game, you sometimes have to do that if you want to get another ship in in your tractor beam. Then you have to close the distance to that other ship, or if you want to be able to phaser them when the planet is um, in your way, you gotta you gotta do that a little bit to try and get them back into line of sight. Yeah, as well, which is a, a new aspect of the game added a couple months ago. Right, which is also great. So uh, we're about to get in the next um, few weeks. We're about to get a new version of the game. Fifth, uh, was it one point five e? Yes. And can you tell, I know you want to keep stuff a surprise, but can you hint at anything that's coming next? Okay. One of the things inadvertently got into the current version, which was continuous fire, where it will just fire when it can without you having to actually do the fire command. Um, Probably, I mean, I've made life easier uh, control wise that. It is less tedious for you to do some of the things in the game that you have to do now um, and in a number of areas. And, and you'll probably be quite surprised at that uh, sort of the make it so type philosophy. Um, and, and another thing that uh, is sort of already been hinted at is that I, I put the... Uh, Combat information display was something I added uh, a few weeks ago, I think back in June. And that sort of gives you a lot of information beyond your tactical display of, of other ships, what, they, what their bearings are and things like that. But right now, it's just an information display. It is going to be much closer to, to what it is part of, which is the combat control center. So I am upgrading the the combat information display into a combat control center, and that is one of the the major things. But I'm not going to reveal exactly what that entails. Kind of reminds me of a uh, Battlestar Galactica a little bit with their uh, big table, you know, and they got the like all the tactical things going on there. Uh, that sounds. But, but... Right, right now it is just informational right, uh, right. display, but in uh, 1.5e, you'll be able to actually use it. Oh, that's that's so exciting because combat in this game is intense and it can go by so fast. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about, which I love about this game, is uh, how time works. Um, it's kind of interesting because when you're not moving, the clock isn't counting down. Um, but you can also freeze time and, uh, you can't do everything when you freeze time, but you can do a lot of things, which makes the game so much more manageable. Uh, how did that come about? Cause I think that's one of the, I think it's one of the best features in the game, honestly, from, especially from an accessibility standpoint. Well, um, it, it came from when playing the, the game, and especially for someone that's new, you could get overwhelmed if it was just real-time, everything happening. I mean, uh, Starfleet 1 was completely turn-based. 
and I wanted something that was more like a, a simulation. But I also wanted to have the ability to uh, hold a timeout. I need to think, and also there's probably uh, a uh, a bit of a um, dichotomy, a, a little bit of a disconnect. It's probably the, the right word between time of doing things like bringing up displays and that versus what's happening outside the ship and the the universe. And so I, I decided, well, there are things like it doesn't take you several hours to, to bring up a display or send a message out, which is what it would be in real time if it kept going sort of thing. So I figure, okay, well, you should be able just to stop time in order to be able to do some things which would only take a few seconds if you were really on the ship. And, uh, and I, I, I didn't want players to get overwhelmed. Now, there is an exception with the movement thing and, and not being in rest mode too, is that if there are torpedoes in flight, time will keep moving, even if you're not. And so... Uh, at least until the current round of torpedoes has has uh, t- has taken uh, has been updated. So when you're in combat, even if you're not moving, there might be times that you you have to just freeze the game. Right. Now that makes sense because you know when there are a lot of torpedoes in the air, it gets really crazy. <laughs> and that's. Yeah, I know that's a sinking feeling when you see this swarm of red torpedoes oh, headed towards you. Oh, it's a terrible feeling. So I, I, I'm still not great at avoiding torpedoes. How would you recommend? I, I mean, I turn on evasion mode, and I fuddle with the ECM, um, but I still get hit a lot. So what would you recommend I do to maybe be, do a better job at avoiding incoming torpedo fire? Well, I have actually made the evasive mode uh, more effective than that was a, a sort of a, a recent change. Uh, because what it did before, it would just swing your your ship's heading 45 degrees within a 45 degrees, either left or right, somewhere in that. And and the the torpedoes were were still uh, hitting you too easily. So I actually put a uh, probability in that that the torpedo will miss if you're doing evasive because I figured that your your evasive should be a bit more effective than that. Uh, so uh, evasive is probably one of the things that's most effective against the uh, uh, torpedoes. The ECM is very effective against phasers. Uh, another thing is the angle that the torpedoes come in at, uh, especially if you use ECM. If they're coming from the front or behind, uh, they'll probably hit you because. Uh, uh, but if you they're coming from a right angle and you have, for instance, ECM on, then they can't track you, and they're and they're more likely to to miss you. Oh, so basically... So turn- crossing the T in sailing oh, ships uh, should right. also work here. Okay, that's that's good to know. Show them your side instead of your rear or your front. Um, now, makes- I, 
Go ahead. I will admit that that is one thing I had in Starfleet One that I really had wanted, and maybe I'll put it into Star. I'm pretty sure I'll put it in Starfleet Two Deluxe is to have independent shields. I had four shields in uh, Starfleet One, and you would manage your shields. Uh, you had auto mode, or you could do it manually. In this one, you just have one shield uh, value, and, and I sort of miss being able to angle the shields or manipulate the shields based on your combat situation. But oh. I just don't have the... Uh, that, that would just be too hard to put in the current version of the game yeah uh i can i can imagine that would be kind of hard to implement given uh the limitations on what you can do with the current game even though there's so much in there already uh so right now the plan is to which version do you want to get to before you hit steam is it 1.6 all the 1.5s are going to be the playtest versions and i'm hoping that uh 1.5e uh f at the very most would be the last one that i would do uh before the and that would be the it might be 1.5f would be the final beta version to go out and then once it is declared uh operational or release then it would come out as 1.6 right and uh that's when it'll hit steam um, and hopefully is, the GOG as well. And ho- hopefully GOG. Yeah, this is perfect for GOG. This is utterly perfect for GOG. Yeah, I'll definitely um, get it on GOG then. Yeah, I, I'm getting it on both. No question. <laughs> oh, no, I'm doubled. I'm I'm dipping as many times as I can. Um, but then the plan is to launch an eventual Kickstarter for a deluxe version of Starfleet Two. We've hint we've talked about that a little bit, but what are what, are, what would you say are the big plans for the deluxe version of Starfleet 2? Well, I don't want to fool very much with uh, the engine and the AI, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's mostly the interface. Right. Uh, I, I want to replace the ASCII characters and everything with, uh, with uh, the graphics, being able to, to be able to fit more on the, on the screen, more information on the screen at once and uh uh and and trying to implement some degree of multi-thread in to avoid the the jerkiness and the the pauses uh, that are in it uh right now uh i would say those are the main things you know like we're also with with planets you know have a uh more realistic looking planets or planet maps. We did a bit better job in star legions for planets. And I think we can do a even better one in the deluxe. Yeah. I mean, the core gameplay is so solid and uh, just, just adding like interface and quality of life things would just make it even better. Like again, like if I could put like the war map on my second monitor, for example, <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing would be, would be just astounding. Um, yeah, I get giddy when I think of having gig- gigabytes of RAM available. Oh my god! Because <laughs> I mean, you, for for decades you've worked in that six forty k limitation, and again, what you've been able to do with that limitation and the game you've been able to make with that limitation is 
such an achievement. It is, there's really no other game like this. I mean, some come close, but there really is. And, and Derek, again, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Battle cruiser is great, but it's not this. <laughs> I'll just, I'm just going to say, um, uh, yeah, the thing, the, the game you have made just within that limitation is just an astounding thing. That so I maybe am, maybe we can get like an old space shuttle computer, you know, like huh. at a pawn shop somewhere, and see <laughs> if we can get this running on it because it oh, probably man. would. It would probably just barely squeeze in there. You don't know how tempted I've been to like try and put a four eighty six together, <laughs> some kind of legacy computer. What was just what was that uh, thing that you posted? What was that Kickstarter thing you posted though today? That, com- oh, that uh someone's remaking the uh, the Sinclair, I believe. Um, the British, what is it? The British computer? The uh, hang on. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. the The case looks really nice. Um, you know, don't know about Z, the rest this, of it. Sorry, probably a spectrum. Raspberry Pi up in there. Yeah, it's they're they're uh, they're uh, they're uh, not rebranding, relaunching, reloading. Uh, it's a new ZX Spectrum, which was uh, primarily a British computer, I believe. It didn't really have much traction here in America, but it was very big, uh, especially in England. And that was like the first computer that Elite was available on, I believe, was the uh, the ZX Spectrum back in the early 80s. Um, so right now there's a Kickstarter to launch a new version of the ZX Spectrum which looks kind of amazing. Actually, like I'm, I'm very intrigued by this thing. It's kind of awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I like how it, it like retains the look of the old one, but it doesn't have like a nasty membrane keyboard on it. Oh God. The membrane keyboard. (laughs) Yeah. Like the original PC junior, the chiclet. Yes. Yes. My, my first computer, which was a uh, Tandy, which is a Tandy TRS 80 color computer. Not even the big tier, uh, the tier, not even the big trash 80. It was a little trash 80. That was about as big as a hardcover book. It had one of those chiclet membrane keyboards. That was the worst. <laughs> no, man, the worst of the membranes was on the Atari 400. That, that I, thing was like typing on a table. I don't even know. I don't, I've never had any Atari computer, uh, sadly. Yeah, just look at a picture of one. It'll it'll speak for itself. I feel like it, I missed just, out. <laughs> it's it's like the keys were bubble wrap under hard plastic, and you were trying to pop the bubbles to type. It's nasty. Yeah, the, the 800 was better, and then the 800 yeah. XL was better than that. Oh, God, no, I see it now. Oh, God, that looks awful. Oh, my God, who would want to type on that thing for any kind of extended period of time? Nobody. Ow. (laughs) Ow. (laughs) The PC Junior was was bad enough. I I had um, one of the NASA flight directors for the shuttle was uh, had a PC Junior and he used to test out Starfleet One on it for me to make sure it worked. But he soon replaced the uh, chiclet board with the the you could buy a a uh, regular keyboard for the PC Junior. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm looking at that keyboard and that was similar to the one I had on the trash 80. That looks, that looks yeah. really almost painful to type on. It was. Oh God. The, oh, the tactile feedback was, was really bad. 
System in Shock is saying he learned to he learned basic on an Atari four hundred. Ouch. <laughs> you get you gotta love that old hardware though. There were there it was a it was a whole new frontier back in those days. There there was yeah, nothing was, standard. It was like no nobody had decided what a keyboard should look like at that point. <laughs> Where do we put arrow keys? I don't know. Put them on uh I, J, K, and L. Yeah, we'll do Where that. Where do you put the function keys? Do you put them on the top? Do you put them on the side? Left? Right? I don't know. <laughs> Why not all three? <laughs> yeah, see, the original PC keyboard had the function keys on the left, and so Starfleet 2 and Starfleet 1 were designed, well, it didn't matter for Starfleet 1, but Starfleet 2 it was designed for the the function keys on the left, and so that's why right now you configure it which way you want it, either the set A or set B, and set A, which used to be the default, was the on the side. I'm going to be honest, Trevor, because of Starfleet 2, I've been keeping an eye out on eBay for one of those types of keyboards with the function keys on the left. <laughs> I, I want one for myself. I'm not well, you even You just kidding. go to Unicomp, man. Cost you about a hundred bucks. Do they, do they have them on the side at Unicomp? I'm pretty sure that they would. Oh my god, Let me go investigate. I mean I think I, my 386 computer I have has it on the side, but it has a, a bad video card, and, oh. which is why I don't use it. Yeah, I, I would I would I would honestly want an original because I have a Unicomp keyboard for my I, I got it for the Mac. And it's just not the same. Cause I have an actual model M right here. And I think it's because they made the model M's with a metal base here. While I think the the Unicomps are plastic, and you could tell the difference, you could totally tell, and not just in weight, but just the feel of the typing, you could tell that. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole different. Yeah, it's the the <laughs> PC one twenty two. It's got them across the top and the side. It's got so many functions. Can use. Wait, what? Did they actually have one Unicom? Yeah. Oh it's wait, the PC one twenty two. Oh my God! I see it now. Yeah. Look at that look at that config for the arrow keys too and then they would they put like the home button in the middle. Oh my god, I want this. I want this. I'm going to have to talk to my wife like, "Honey, is it okay if I buy this?" <laughs> I want this so badly. <laughs> Man, if you start looking at like it, you start looking at some old 70s terminal keyboards. Yes. And uh oof, yes. Man. Some of that stuff came out of like a Russian missile silo or something. But <laughs> yeah, it really built the muscles in your fingers to be able to punch those keys down. I know. And Russia and Russia keyboard type you. Oh yeah. No, if like dude, if you keys. haven't, if you haven't heard one of the old solenoid keyboards, it's a thing that just, yeah, if you just like go on YouTube and search for solenoid terminal keyboard and you'll hear it because what they did, like they were trying to transition people to, to computer keyboards, but they were used to being on like the, the IBM Selectric typewriters. So they tried to replicate that typewriter kind of feel by putting uh, like big magnetic solenoids in the keyboard and it's a hell of a thing. Ah, apparently the one with the keyboard, the keys on the side is called the model F. I didn't ah. know that. Um, 
I have a Model M, clearly, but the one with the, the one on the side is called the Model F. I need to find one of those. <laughs> I want it so badly. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the rambling indicates that we should probably wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> Trevor, I want to I wanna thank you so much for coming on again to talk about uh, much more about Starfleet 2 this time. I hope this has been an atonement for me, at least for that first podcast where I had no, I, I had no idea how awesome Starfleet two was. And, um, uh, that, that one was actually, I thought good because we went a lot into the history of the Starfleets and the company Interstell and how that all came about. So I think right. that was a, a good first one. And, and I think this was also good to delve more into Starfleet two. Agreed. And we will, once we, once we get the game, um, on steam, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back to talk about the journey, uh, from there to here. And now speaking of which folks, uh, just a side note, we do need more play testers for, um, Starfleet two. Um, the more people we have playing it and testing it, the quicker it'll get on steam because the quicker we'll find bugs to fix. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you have any interest, um, contact me um, either on whichever platform you're watching this or you can go to spacegamejunkie.com slash contact and uh, we will work to get you into the playtesting program because, again, the more people we have playing this, um, the better it'll be in the end because we'll get bugs fixed more quickly, we'll get it on Steam faster, and that's just better for everyone. And and just warn people they don't need a 486 to play no. this. No, it runs great. That, I play it on DOSBox. I've not. The only thing I've changed on DOSBox is I run it in a window. I haven't changed any of the CPU cycles or anything. Uh, it runs great right out of the box on DOSBox, and um, which runs very, in on any Windows computer, basically. Just about anything. You could apparently can, run can, them on Android I, phones and and all. Can I can I play things. it on my fridge? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try and get DOS box on the Alexa. Uh, hey Alexa, go. go to warp. <laughs> Shit, I'd do. I'd play that. Oh God, right. <laughs> uh, so what so was for- what was the game we had the guy on that he he was reverse engineering the whole game in basic to get it to run? Oh, what, remember what game? No, that that wasn't Starfleet One, was it? That he know. was working on it was. Oh no! Yeah. I think you're thinking of um, rules of engagement. Where yeah, that okay. It, yeah, he ported it yeah. to Windows. I couldn't think of what the heck the name of that was, and it, and it's like we're talking about Starfleet, and I'm like, well, no, it wasn't that, but it was like game in the same basket, right? So yeah, yeah, that's that's another one of these very detailed starship management games. Um, Again, that's another game that just kind of throws you into the deep end, even with tutorials and such. It's, which is why I think the rank system here works the best. So, folks, uh, we're talking today about Starfleet 2 Crawling Commander, which, again, if you want to be a playtester on, just let me know. It will be coming to Steam. Oh, God, I don't want to give a timeline, but hopefully not too far away. Um, but we don't know. Um, but it will, will come to Steam. Will it have multiplayer? <laughs> no. You can have... God. No. No. <laughs> Only if you take turns in the captain's seat. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Hot seat. It'll have hot seat multiplayer. There you go. Uh, well, if, hot seat if, in the in the Klingon fashion in which you oh, kill the yeah. next person to become <laughs> captain. You have to have a fight to get command. <laughs> Uh, or you could, or you could do role playing. Like have someone be your XO. Uh, you sit in a chair and have someone hit the buttons. Uh, <laughs> that kind of multiplayer. Once we uh, get out of all, once we all get out of quarantine, uh, that is. So, folks, uh, next week on the show, uh, we're gonna bring the developer of the uh, Space Fighter cockpit game called Absolute Territory. Uh, we're gonna have him come on next week to talk about his game that's gonna be coming out on September first. Um, just three weeks away from today, actually. So, um, we're going to have him on next week. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And join us for uh, this week's land party. Uh, we're returning to dying light, um, on Thursday. That'll be a lot of fun. And then tomorrow, I think I'm streaming a game called company of crime. If I can wake up in time. Um, so folks, thank you so much for listening and watching Trevor. As always, thank you for being awesome. And for making well, you know, and f- yeah, for coming back on the show. And uh, hey, again, Trevor, you, you, you're gonna have to come back when you uh, when you see an alien. Let us know when you see an alien. All right? <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll send some your way. <laughs> and again, folks, if you have any interest in being a playtester for Starfleet Two, just let me know. We'll get you hooked up. We need more people to play this. Um, but thank you so much for listening and for watching. And until tomorrow. Have a great night, y'all. Take care. Bye-bye.